Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 288, Socinian Approaches to John 1, Part 1. In this two-part episode of the Trinity's podcast, we're going to hear from some early modern era Unitarian Christian scholars about their, quote, Socinian approach to the prologue to John. I put that in quotes because you don't have to be a Socinian. You don't have to be a follower of Socinus and accept his various theological distinctives and his interpretive idiosyncrasies. These approaches are in the same very general ballpark as the interpretation offered last episode by Dr. Andrew Perry. But, you know, he wasn't copying these guys, and there are a lot of unique things about his reading, for instance, his appeals to typology. To put my own cards on the table, I kind of would like this interpretation to be true. It would make things simpler. And even though this interpretation is radically different than the mainstream Trinitarian interpretation, it's not stupid or arbitrary. In fact, there's a lot that can be said for it. At the end of the day, I'm not convinced, but I'm still thinking about it. I've never been fully satisfied in my mind about this difficult text. The problem with it is, it's a paradigm example of unclarity due to brevity. If the author had just thrown in another half a sentence here or there, he might really have decisively decided between the dueling interpretations of John chapter 1. They can basically be sorted into three categories. There's the Trinitarian ones, where, hey, this is about an eternal divine person that eventually becomes flesh. There's the Socinian one that we're going to hear more about in the rest of this two-part episode. And then there's another Unitarian reading, which basically takes it to be a case of wisdom Christology. They would say the Logos is roughly equivalent to divine wisdom as personified in Proverbs chapter 8 and in other sources. And it was this which, so to speak, became a man. But that's a conversation for another time. Why this, quote, Socinian solution would be so neat is it would just cut this eternal divine person out of the picture entirely. According to traditional Trinitarian thinking, as established at the Council at Chalcedon in 451, there supposedly is an eternal divine nature and a complete human nature, and these presumably would be detectable because the divine nature has divine effects and the human nature has human effects. But there's also supposedly this two-natured person, Christ. And so, wait, the term Jesus, the term Christ, these are now triply ambiguous? If you said Christ died and bled, that would only be true of the human nature. If you say Christ has two natures, that would only be true of the two-person composite Christ. And if you say Christ is eternal, that wouldn't be true of the composite or of the human nature, but that would only be true of the divine nature. So there are three things in this theory, and that looks like two too many. If you believe there's this eternal divine person, then your big problem is, well, how does that guy relate to Jesus? Jesus is, by all accounts, the star of the New Testament. He's the main subject of the four Gospels. He's the big deal in the New Testament. We now approach God through him. We learn about God in a deeper way through him. He's been exalted to God's right hand. Who's this he? 
the man. You should wonder if you just have complacently accepted the Trinitarian view of these things, why you actually need these other two characters, the composite Christ and the divine nature. Maybe you don't need them. Maybe you can make sense out of everything in the New Testament just on the supposition that it's about Christ Jesus, the man, God's Messiah, the Son of Mary and the Son of God. This elimination move is very helpful, and it can save you from an unending deluge of speculation. A wise man once wrote that of the making of books there is no end. Let me tell you, of the making of scholarly articles about John 1 and Philippians 2, there has been no end, just an explosive multiplication. But when you go over to Philippians 2, and this was pointed out to me by Dr. Andrew Perry, right at the start of the famous passage, verse 5, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. That's the subject we're talking about. The Messiah, Jesus. Who's that? A man. Now, the translator puts a comma there and it says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, etc. That's not now changing to this eternal divine person. So it looks like you should just see Can you understand this passage as being about Christ Jesus, the man? And I think you can. If you want to hear my take on this, I'll put a link on the blog post for this episode for my long blog post called A Reading of Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Back to John 1. It'd be really neat if we could do this same maneuver and just cut off all this endless speculation about this second eternal divine person that is supposed to be expounded in this passage and say, well, actually, he must really mean the man, Jesus Christ. And you can understand it that way. You don't have to appeal to this other weird thing, right? The rest of the gospel is about Jesus. This word character is never more heard of in this gospel. That's strange. Why is that? Well, last week you heard Dr. Perry argue that, you know, we should collapse the word in Jesus. They really are one and the same. This term in Greek, halagos, the word, it's just a title of Jesus. That usually is a part of a Socinian-type approach to this chapter. A few more general considerations before we dive into these very interesting earlier sources. We don't want to pick an interpretation of this passage just because it fits with our pre-existing theology. This applies to the Trinitarian, and it applies to the Unitarian. If it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. If you're strongly in one camp or the other, there are very strong, non-rational forces that will push you to just saying, well, hey, this one interpretation's obvious. Those guys are crazy. They're mangling scripture. They're assaulting it. They're twisting it. They're practically stinking liars. Well... Look, we have to admit this isn't an easy-to-deal-with text. The Trinitarians have one general sort of approach, of course, but when it comes to actually having something to say about the Incarnation and the Trinity, there are quite a few different positions there. People who hold to a biblical Unitarian theology and Christology, our position on God and Christ is pretty much the same. We think the one God just is the Father, and we think that Jesus is a man who was miraculously conceived and began to exist somewhere in that reproductive process. But we are divided on the way that we deal with this text. Okay, so don't just find an interpretation that fits with other things you like. That's not how you go about understanding a source. 
Here's another way you can't do it. You can't just think that if you study enough grammar that the correct interpretation will just therefore spring off the page. Once you have read it carefully in the original language and understood the forms of the words and their functions in the sentences. It would be nice if the world worked that way. It'd be nice if we could just learn some Greek and familiarize ourselves with some lexicons and with some Greek grammars and boom, the interpretation of this passage will be obvious. We know that it doesn't work and you have to agree that by itself that is not enough because very learned people who have all of these skills have disagreed about this passage. The Trinitarian way in recent times is just to pretend that this was obviously uh, Trinitarian or sort of pointy in that direction, and that's just how everyone always took it, but it's not so. The people you're going to hear from today who are non-Trinitarian Christians trying to figure out John 1, they are way more educated than your average evangelical apologist. They're much better scholars, for the most part, than your average pastor. And some of them, honestly, have better Greek skills and better Bible-interpreting skills than your average seminary professor has. So yeah, there's disagreement among the experts. One thing that's closely related to this sort of faith and grammar, and this comes up repeatedly in my debate with Chris Date at a couple of crucial junctures in his argument, Another kind of simplistic mistake is thinking that you can just always look at statistics and that will tell you how to interpret the word in front of you in this passage. And, you know, it just doesn't always work that way. Sometimes the less likely is what has actually happened. Sometimes the less probable has actually occurred. It just all depends on the factors at hand. So imagine that I go off and write a book called Dale's Guide to California Surf Culture. Not that I really know anything about that. I mean, I lived there for five years, but I never surfed on a big board. Anyway, suppose I did such a thing as that. And I used the word surf, I don't know, a thousand times in this 300-page book. And every single one of those times, the word surf refers to this activity where you, you know, try to stand up on this specialized board in the ocean and get propelled along on the top of the water using wave power. That's what surfing means. Now, suppose the publisher says, hey, you need to make a website to help market this book. And there's a little blurb on the dust cover of the book in the back. And it says, for more information about surfing, including videos of Dale hanging 10, surf on over to Dale's History of California Surf Culture.com. Now, if someone came along and said, hey, the previous 1,000 times, Dale used the word surf. It meant this sport that you do in the ocean where you try to get up on this board. And so he must mean that you're supposed to surf with a surfboard over to this website. No, that's, that's crazy. Now you might think, well, that's just super obvious. That's my point. Now you, you can construct a less obvious case. If I don't say surf over and then give you the URL, I can just say, uh, you know, one day I was leisurely surfing and I ran across a news story about a new kind of surfboard. Now, probably what I mean is that I was internet surfing. Probably if I was surfing on the ocean, I'm not there going to run across a news story. So the sport meaning is possible, but it's very unlikely. Anyway, 
you can't just say, hey, this word is always used in a certain way, therefore it must be used in that same way here, because there could be something going on here that's different than the rest of the book or the rest of this author's other writings. And really what you have to do is you have to try to make sense of the whole and make sense of each of the parts in light of the whole, see what role they're playing in it. What you're trying to do when you interpret a difficult source is you're trying to follow along with the thoughts of the author. And you're trying to get yourself into the author's mindset and his original audience's mindset. What kind of things would they be taking for granted? What kind of expectations would they have? What kind of signals would they pick up from the vocabulary being used? And that's one last point that I would make. We have to assume not only that an author is consistent with himself, and by the way, that's one of the first things that a lot of Trinitarian interpreters just merrily flush down the toilet. Aha, well, isn't this interesting? John just identifies Jesus as God and distinguishes Jesus from God in the very same breath. Man, he's so paradoxical. No, you can't do that. You're interpreting him uncharitably. You should assume that he has a view that makes sense with itself, that's not incoherent, that's not confused. But of course, just as misery loves company, confusion loves company as well. So people love to project their confusions onto this book. And this book lends itself to that because of its abstract style. And the fact that it just doesn't talk back when you get it wrong. But anyway, you not only have to interpret an author as consistent with himself insofar as you can, right? Maybe some authors are confused, but you also have to assume that an author is competent to get his point across to his original audience. So whatever you come up with as the interpretation of this passage it shouldn't be something that only a very clever professor like yourself could have possibly figured out. It can't be something that would only make sense after the Second Ecumenical Council in the year 381. It can't be something that would make sense after the rise of Logos theories, starting with Justin Martyr. And this, I think, really sets the bar high, because you need more than a reading that just coheres with itself. You need more than a reading which can be given some motivation, given other scriptural texts, given the scriptural background and perhaps non-scriptural background. You need a reading that's all that and also is one which could be understood by a person in the second half of the first century. A person like that isn't going to have all the, quote, benefits that you have as somebody who knows the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed and the definition of Chalcedon, etc. This person maybe is familiar with the gospel according to Mark or one of the other gospels, and they've gotten some apostolic instruction from Paul, Peter, and John. How could they have understood this? This can't be a secret code that only gets finally cracked in the fourth century. Okay, that's enough of a rant about that. When the Trinity's podcast returns, some discussion of John 1 in the famous Rakovian Catechism.
The first edition of the Rakovian Catechism came out in 1605, and Sosinus himself was involved with writing some of it, but so were several other of his brethren from the minor Reformed Church in Poland, and it was published in its first edition in Polish. In 1609, someone translated into Latin, thus making it more widely available. In 1651, this Latin version was reprinted in England and had a big influence over English Protestant thinking in the rest of the 1600s. In 1659, some Socinian scholars started working on a revised and enlarged Latin edition. And in 1680, three other Socinian scholars revised that version yet further and added more notes to it. This happily was translated into English by English Unitarian Thomas Rees in 1818. And that's the version I'm going to read to you in a moment. I reprinted his version of this back in 2007. I'll put a link where you can get this on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. In section 4, chapter 1, they're answering scriptures that people use to prove that Christ had an eternal divine nature. And this is where they start discussing the famous prologue to John. They write, In the cited passage, John 1, 1, wherein the word is said to have been in the beginning, there is no reference to an antecedent eternity without commencement, because mention is made of a beginning which is opposed to that eternity. But the word beginning, used absolutely, is to be understood of the subject matter under consideration. Thus, Daniel 8, 1 In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, even to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first, or at the beginning. John 15.27 And you also shall bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning, says Jesus. John 16.4 These things I said not to you at the beginning, because I was with you. And Acts 11.15, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, as on us, at the beginning. As then the matter of which John is treating is the gospel, or the things transacted under the gospel, nothing else ought to be understood here besides the beginning of the gospel, a matter clearly known to the Christians whom he addressed, namely the advent and preaching of John the Baptist, according to the testimony of all the evangelists, each of whom begins his history with the coming and preaching of John the Baptist. Mark, indeed, chapter 1, verse 1, expressly states that this was the beginning of the gospel. In like manner, John himself employs the word beginning, placed thus absolutely, in the introduction to his first epistle, at which beginning he states himself to have been present. And besides this, he uses the same term, logos, word, as if he meant to be his own interpreter. For there is no reason why Jesus, whom in his gospel John designates by the absolute term logos or word, should not here be called halagos tes the word of life, because, as we learn from what follows, he conveyed to us the tidings of eternal life, which until that time had been buried in the counsels of the Father. But in what sense is it asserted that the word was in the beginning of the gospel? In the following, 
that anyone might learn that Jesus, even at the very beginning of the gospel, was invested with his office, though he had not as yet entered on its duties, being at that time communing with God. Wherefore, John the Baptist was on no account to be preferred before him, because, when he was preaching the gospel, Jesus was not present and publicly seen. The evangelist therefore distinguishes him by the appropriate title of the Word, that is, of God, in order to show that even in this very respect the office of Christ was long anterior, more ancient, and more excellent than that of John the Baptist. And with what propriety he ascribes this title to Jesus, and asserts that he is, by virtue of his office, the first in the concerns of the gospel, he evinces by the creation effected by him of all things under the gospel. In other words, the new creation. And who this Baptist was, and wherefore he cannot be compared with Jesus or preferred before him, he explains in verses the third to the ninth of this chapter, and confirms his observations further on by the personal testimony of the Baptist himself. Now, there are undeniably some good points here. One point is that just on the face of it, it would make sense to call Jesus the Word. Why not? Because God's Word came through him in a unique and wonderful manner. Just like he would call him the way, the truth, the life, the true bread, the light, and so on, why not call him the Word? Sure, you might do that. And in fact, he is referred to as the Word of God in one passage in Revelation. Another point is that beginning normally means a period of time, not some kind of timeless eternity. Another indisputable point is that what counts as a beginning depends on the subject matter at hand. And I think the verses that they cited to make that point show it really decisively. Now, in their interpretation, the whole context of this chapter is the New Covenant era. It's the era of new creation, the era of the gospel. Honestly, a lot of readers see so many words that bring to mind the Genesis creation in this passage that they're still inclined to think that the NRK at the beginning refers to the Genesis creation and that this is commenting on the Genesis creation because in some Old Testament texts, it talks about God creating through his word. Another point they make is that on the assumption that the first letter from John is by the same author as this gospel, Why not look there to try to find some clarification about what's going on here? That's a perfectly good point. Whether 1 John helps their case or hurts it is another question in my mind. Another indisputably good point here is that there is a New Testament teaching of new creation, of Jesus as new creator or God accomplishing a new creation through Jesus. This occurs in some passages by Paul and a few other places. We should wonder if that is going on here, because there's talk of all things being made or coming to be, perhaps. Although, as you'll hear, not all of the, quote, Socinian-type interpreters would translate that verb that way. Now, another question you might have for these Socinians, the many authors of the Rakovian Catechism, is, well, what do you make of the word being called God? You're saying the word is the man Jesus, how can a, quote, mere man be called God? Because it says, Theos ein halagos, God was the word. How do you take that? Well, that comes up in a later discussion, section 4, chapter 1. 
they put out the question, in what passages of scripture is Christ called God? John 1, 1, and the word was God. Thomas's exclamation, John 20, 28, my Lord and my God. And Romans 9, 5, where the apostle writes that Christ is over all or over all things, God blessed forever. They ask, what is to be inferred from these testimonies? That the divine nature is claimed for Christ cannot be proved from them is manifest from this, that in the first testimony, the word of God is spoken of, which must necessarily be something else than God himself, especially as in the same place John declares that it was with God. In the second testimony, Thomas, if indeed the words be not an exclamation of surprise, calls Christ God, in whose feet and hands he observes the wounds of the nails, and in whose side he sees the mark of the spear. And because he beholds him risen from the dead, he calls him his Lord and his God, as if he might call him Lord, who might also with propriety be called God. And Paul calls him, who was of the fathers as concerning the flesh, God over all, blessed forever, all which, it is evident, could by no means be affirmed of him who is the one God. For it would follow from this that that one God has two gods, of whom one was with the other, while to have the marks of the wounds and to be of the fathers, in other words, descended of the fathers, are circumstances that belong altogether to a man, which to ascribe to him who is the one God would be the height of absurdity. Then they discuss Hebrews 1.8.9, which there's one who's called God, who has a God over him. So clearly the term God is equivocal. What about when the passage goes on to say that all things were made through the word? What's their view about that? Several pages later, they say that God, from the very beginning of the new covenant, has, through the instrumentality of Christ, performed and hereafter will accomplish all things that in any way relate to the salvation of mankind, and also consequently to the destruction of the wicked, from which it is necessary that Christ should be like God as to authority and dominion, power and wisdom, and, to omit other particulars, as to honor and worship, and therefore united to him as to the author of all these things, so that if anything were committed to Christ, the same would, in consequence of this, be also necessarily committed to God himself. Now, if the scriptures declare concerning Moses that he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, Exodus 32, 7, and that he was the redeemer of that people, Acts 7.35, and affirm of other persons the very same thing, which is most explicitly predicated of God himself, when neither Moses nor those other persons were joined with God by such a union as subsists between him and Christ, with much more justice may those things which in their first application were spoken of God be referred in an accommodated sense to Christ, on account of that peculiar and most intimate union which subsists between them. So there they're addressing new creation and also just, you know, why is so much language in the New Testament applied to Christ that in earlier times was applied only or mostly to God? And I think they give a good answer. When the Trinity's podcast returns, some very interesting comments on the prologue to the Gospel according to John by some scholars from the early 1800s.
If you're a serious Christian these days, at least in the Western world, you probably have on your shelf at least one study Bible. This is a Bible with, you know, really serious, heavy, explanatory notes, notes which could be about textual problems, about translation issues, about interpretive issues, and include cross-references and such. I'm a big fan of study Bibles myself. I own many of them. Of course, they do tend to amplify the theological bias that's in a translation. To translate is to interpret somewhat. You can't get away from that. But when you carry on your interpretation in the notes, it's all the more serious. So anyway, what's so interesting is that Unitarian Christians in England in 1809 published a book they called The New Testament in an Improved Version upon the basis of Archbishop Newcomb's new translation, with a corrected text and notes critical and explanatory. These were scholarly Unitarian Christians who realized that there are a lot of translation bias issues that cause difficulties for non-Trinitarian Christians, and they hoped that they might rectify the situation by translating a bit more accurately and having a lot of helpful notes along the way. And they were also kind of on the cutting edge of textual critical issues for instance, uh, throwing out that phony verse in 1 John chapter 5 that Trinitarians used to love to quote. But instead of translating these 27 books from scratch, which is, you know, a real chore, what they did was they picked an available translation that no one had rights to, done by a deceased Irish archbishop, I assume an Anglican archbishop of Ireland, named Newcomb. And they said, well, let's start with this and let's fix it where we think it needs fixing. And if we fix it, we'll put his interpretation in the footnotes. And I have to say, this is a very interesting book. It's a shame that as far as I know, you can't get a decent paperback of this nowadays. You can get it on the Internet Archive and Google Books, and I'll put links on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. But getting a paper copy is another thing. But it deserves to be read. It's a very interesting and scholarly edition of the New Testament. It definitely has some things in it that you'll disagree with and that I will disagree with, but they tend to be very honest in admitting that when it comes to difficult passages, some scholars, whether Trinitarian or Unitarian, understand this passage in another way, and they'll tell you what that is. Contrast that behavior with what you see, say, in the ESV Study Bible or the NIV Study Bible, etc., these versions are very happy to completely ignore the entire history of non-Trinitarian Bible interpretation and just give you their own kind of partisan Nicene spin on things. Naturally, when they put the word improved in the title, that enraged their critics. But that's a story for another day. The book did have a good readership, and it went through five editions before pooping out. Online, you can find the first 1809 edition, and I've read through a lot of the fourth edition from 1817. There was also an 1819 edition, but I think it's very, very rare because they didn't print and sell very many copies. So I've never set eyes on the fifth edition, but the fourth edition is very interesting. So this is an example, and an unusually late example, of Unitarian Christians giving a Socinian-type interpretation to the prologue to the fourth gospel. So let's start off by listening to the entirety of it, and then we'll go through it piece by piece, and I'll comment on some of the interesting translational and interpretive choices that they've made. The Word was in the beginning, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. 
This word was in the beginning with God. All things were done by him, and without him was not anything done that has been done. By him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness overspread it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a testimony, to testify of the light, so that through him all might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to testify of that light. That was the true light, which having come into the world is enlightening every man. He was in the world, and the world was enlightened by him, and yet the world knew him not. He came to his own, and yet those who were his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave authority to be the children of God, even to them who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, but of God. And the word was flesh, and full of kindness and truth he dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only Son who came from the Father. For of his fullness we have all received, and favor for favor. For the law was given by Moses, but favor and truth were by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only Son, who is in the heart of the Father, he has declared him. John testified about him, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me is before me, for he is my chief. Interesting, right? And on those pages, there are a lot more notes than there is text, as you'd expect from a really over-the-top study Bible. One thing they've done, which if you were following along in some other translation, you would have noticed and been confused by, is they moved verse 15 from in between 14 and 16 to go after 18. And they cite a couple of previous scholars who had made this move. They must have been conjecturing that there was some scribal mistake here. It is true that if you just take verse 15 out, then you can just go from 14 to 16 very easily. Um, and 15 is kind of an interruption in the thought, it looks like. That's why the New Revised Standard puts verse 15 in parentheses. But I don't think this is a popular move, right? Maybe the writer just interrupted his thought. Writers do that sometimes. At least they didn't decide that that sentence was an interpolation and throw it away. They just shoved it to the back of the passage, in a sense. This is where John says in the New Revised Standard, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. And by the way, if you think that last before me means before in time, then John the Baptist's statement looks like a weird non sequitur, right? Just existing before somebody doesn't make you greater than that person that you've existed before, right? But what he's saying on their interpretation is Jesus came on the public scene after John, and yet he has surpassed John because all along he was greater. He was before John in rank. That's their idea. Okay, let's go through it piece by piece, and I'll make a few comments on it. The Word was in the beginning, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. This Word was in the beginning with God. All things were done by Him, 
and without him was not anything done that has been done. So they start off on an interesting foot here. They depart from English translations by putting the word at the beginning of the sentence. And I think in English style, that does fit with the word being the subject matter of these three assertions. In verses 1 and 2, three different things are asserted about the same subject, and that's the word. And so instead of saying, in the beginning was the word, they say, the word was in the beginning. Or they say in their note, from the first. Right. That's what in the beginning means. Which beginning? The time of creation, when the world began to exist, or the time of new creation? As you just heard, they'll take the second option. Okay, so the three claims are that the word is in the beginning, the word was with God, and then the word was, they translate controversially, a God. But let's go back to the with God. Trinitarian interpreters love to wax poetic about how the word pros means towards or facing or communicates intimate interpersonal relationship and things like this. I mean, they are reading it that way. The word is Jesus. He's with God. When's it talking about? In their view, not in timeless eternity, but rather something that happened near the beginning of his ministry. In their note, they say that Jesus withdrew from the world to commune with God and to receive divine instructions and qualifications previously to his public ministry. As Moses was with God in the mount, Exodus 34:28, so was Christ in the wilderness or elsewhere to be instructed and disciplined for his high and important office. So before setting out, he has to connect with God in a special way. They're smoothing over there a very interesting wrinkle in this type of Socinian interpretation. And that's what one famous historian calls the Socinian theory of the pre-ascension ascension. Later on in the gospel, there's a passage which, if read very literally, sounds like Christ went up to heaven and then came back down. And Socinus and others suggested that, hey, this must be, you know, when he had some special communion with God before he set off on his mission. Thomas Rees, the English translator of the Rakovian Catechism, has an informative footnote about this. He says, The Polish Socinians held that Jesus, after his baptism, was conveyed to heaven in order to receive the necessary instructions previously to his entering on the duties of his sacred office, and hence interpret the text under consideration as referring to this literal ascent and to his subsequent descent from heaven to speak and teach on earth the celestial things which he had there learnt. The Unitarians in this country, generally, if not universally, now interpret the whole of the verse figuratively. By ascending into heaven they understand in this place, agreeably to a Hebrew form of speaking, being made acquainted with the counsels and purposes of God to mankind, and in conformity with this sense of the phrase, the whole passage has thus been paraphrased. No man has ascended up to heaven, that is, no one is instructed in the divine counsels, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, that is, accepting the Son of Man, who had a commission from God to reveal his will to mankind. Okay, so these interpreters don't want to go all the way with the pre-ascension-ascension hypothesis, which honestly isn't clearly mentioned anywhere in the Gospels or elsewhere in the New Testament. And they say, well, but still it could have been some starting, you know, kind of retreat period. 
okay. I mean, that's not a crazy interpretation. He does go out in the wilderness. He has a long fast. Presumably, he not only is tempted, but he's communing with God and maybe getting clarity about the mission he's about to launch out on. Okay, the word was a God. In their note, they point out that in the Jewish phraseology, they were called gods to whom the word of God came, John 10.35. So they just cite Jesus' own words there. All things were done by him, and without him was not anything done that has been done. By him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness overspread it not. So they don't say all things were made, all things were created, rather all things were done by him. And the all things they're thinking are things relating to the new era, the new dispensation, so to speak. For better and worse, our author has used the word ginomai in this passage multiple times, and this word can have a lot of meanings. They comment in their note that, Ginomai occurs upwards of 700 times in the New Testament, but never in the sense of create. It signifies in this gospel, where it occurs 53 times, to be, to come, to become, to come to pass, also to be done or transacted. And then they give a bunch of references, and I'll put those references in the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. They say all things in the Christian dispensation were done by Christ, that is, by his authority and according to his direction. And in the ministry committed to his apostles, nothing has been done without his warrant. Like he says later in the book, without me, you can do nothing. Okay, interesting. If they're right about which beginning this is, then the all things which were done, it can't be referring to the creation of all things because that didn't happen in Jesus' era. For the sake of time, I'm going to skip over the section about the man sent from God whose name was John. He was in the world, and the world was enlightened by him, and yet the world knew him not. So he was in the world, and the world was enlightened by him instead of made by him? You'll have to see their note on that. I'm not sure I follow it. By the way, I've posted a PDF of this passage on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. He came to his own, and yet those who were his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave authority to be the children of God, even to them who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, but of God. So clearly on their reading, all of this all along has been about the man Jesus. And so this too is still about him. And to finish up, And the word was flesh, and full of kindness and truth he dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only Son who came from the Father. For of his fullness we have all received, and favor for favor. For the law was given by Moses, but favor and truth were by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only Son, who is in the heart of the Father, He has declared him. John testified about him, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me is before me, for he is my chief. So verse 14, Kaihalagos sarx agenito, 
they translate, and the word was flesh, or they say in their footnote, nevertheless, the word was flesh. The word was flesh, they say in their note, not became flesh, which is Newcomb's translation, or was made flesh, which is the common version. The most usual meaning of genomai is to be. In this sense, agenito is used in this chapter, verse 6, and they observe also in Luke 24:19, where it says, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was, and again, it's a form of genomai there, not who became a prophet. This little word in Greek, chi, and, can mean a bunch of different things. Usually it just means and or also, but it can mean but, which is contrastive, or even nevertheless. They say that in Greek, the word flesh frequently just is a way of referring to a man, a human being. They say, but it frequently and peculiarly stands for man as mortal, subject to infirmities and sufferings, and as such is particularly appropriate to Christ here and in other places. Right, and then the famous part about you can't see God, but you can see the Son of God, right? That's why the Son of God can't be God. You can't say it's impossible to see God, but by the way, the Son is God and you can see Him. No, there's a distinction there about one who's unseen and one who is seen. I think our author here is presupposing this difference between God and His human Son. Although I think actually it's not physical seeing that's the issue there. It's just that no one has kind of adequately understood God. But luckily for us, we have been given a profound understanding from God from the Son of God who's at the Father's side, or an antique language in the bosom of the Father. And then the interesting testimony of John, they translate as, He who comes after me is before me, for he is my chief, or they say, principal. When the Trendies podcast returns, a few concluding reflections. So what do we learn from all of this? One thing is that there are some interesting translation choices that have to be made here. And some of those choices, honestly, are going to favor various of the three interpretations. Some are going to favor the Trinitarian interpretations, and so that's why most of the mainstream editions bend it in that direction. Others are going to favor the Socinian reading that we've been exploring in this episode, Others are going to better fit this other Unitarian interpretation that, for now, I'm just gesturing at. So that's one point, that the translations of certain words and phrases are going to go hand-in-hand with certain interpretations. That's just something you can't get away from in interpreting. Another thing that I think you should conclude from this is there are things that can be said in favor of this Socinian reading. The word was with God. 
that's a special time of pre-ministry or early ministry communion between Jesus and his father? Okay, maybe. That the author here is calling Jesus a God because the word of God came to him. And later on in chapter 10, he has Jesus make that very point. Hmm. You wouldn't then import the assumption that you can only call a being God or a God if that being has a divine nature. Right. That's not a first century assumption. That's not a biblical assumption. Is it plausible here that the author is calling Jesus the word? Well, it's certainly not impossible. It's certainly not super unlikely. He might be calling him that, just like he later calls him all kinds of other interesting titles, even titles which you might think should be reserved for God alone. Could the beginning here be the beginning of the Christian era? Well, yeah, it could be. It has that very meaning in Mark 1.1 and in some other places in the New Testament. I mean, if I had to pick this interpretation or a Trinitarian interpretation, I would go with this one. The Trinitarian interpretation labors under some really serious difficulties, in my view, but that's something I'll have to talk about in another episode. Next week, we'll hear from this same interesting Unitarian Study Bible about what they believe is an explanatory passage at the start of the first letter from John. And we'll also hear from some less famous early modern Unitarian Christian sources arguing on behalf of this Jesus-centered, first-century-centered reading of the prologue of the fourth gospel. Thanks to our friend, the inimitable Brandon Duke, for lending his golden voice to this episode. This week's thinking music has been the track Just a Blip by Andy G. Cohen. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinities podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinities podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. For listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind. <laughs>